Broadcast out of New York City, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network. On Monday, June 16th, 2014, I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember that our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today, you'll hear Nurse Vicki's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour. And we've got another really good show for you today that's going to include what you must know before starting cancer treatment. Are we selling dishonesty? Does chemotherapy cause brain damage? Here's another good reason to drink red wine. Yum. (laughs) If your sleep rhythm is disturbed, your health may be in danger if you eat certain foods. Isn't that interesting? And what blood pressure medications can make you blind? Have you noticed all the cancer center ads on TV and in the magazines lately? Well, they sound inviting and comforting and supportive and reassuring. And you must admit that they're heavy on emotional appeal, but they're light on the facts. Just pay attention regarding the cancer treatment benefits, the side effects, the risks, or the outcomes from their programs relying on patient testimonials and general messages of hope. And the results of a typical patient aren't disclosed, and they can deceive people into thinking that whatever treatment they accept is just fine and just what they want, mostly promoting conventional cancer treatment. Right. Well, when is the last time you thought it was a good idea to believe an ad? I mean, are they really honest and what is it about? they're so tempting. You know, they make it seem like it's going to the spa. Well, that's the art of recruiting people to do something that you sell. It's so almost like make making money. people want to have cancer so they can go and well, be... Well, I don't know if it goes that far. So they can go and be <laughs> taken, taken care of. You're being get... a little rough now. <laughs> no, but it's I... like, oh, what nice attention and... Well, they do make some some of it look like it's a pleasant place to be and that... You don't need to worry about all the side effects of the treatment that you're going to get or what the real outcome is. I mean, do doctors really tell you the negative aspects of full disclosure? They don't. And I, wonder, because, I wonder if they know. Oh, I think they do. But I, it's the sort of thing that you know what you're trained to do. You want to accomplish a certain goal a certain way because that's what you know. And you pretty much believe in what you're doing, although when you really think about it, do you really? You know, I know as a doctor, I wonder how much I really believed at the start. I, I was pretty intrigued about doing things to people with technologies and drugs. Well, yeah, but then you also get brainwashed to believe it. Well, for sure. And that's why it happened. Yeah, but it and took what, about 20 years to figure out that that was not something that was such a good idea. Well, then also, what would it say to you yourself as the doctor if you admitted to yourself that you were prescribing treatments to people that maybe weren't improving their quality of life or their length of life and, you know, just trying something that was going to really just make them miserable. Well, I think the intent is that the doctor has hope too. But there's another piece to it where there's a conflict of interest. I mean, when you're an oncologist, and and not all oncologists do this, the ones that work for big organizations do not. But the doctors who are in private practice, as a general rule, sell the chemotherapy products to their patients. Yeah, so they, they make and a they profit. They hike, hike up the prices. Well, they, I don't know that they hike them up any more than what the manufacturer wants. And well, like remember to, that study that we that we read about though once. Well, they try to promote 
the sale of that because it makes about 25% of the average oncologist's income per year. So you're looking at huge amounts of money that are involved. And if the idea is to make an income and to provide for yourself and your family, then the idea would be to sell the product and you become like a salesperson as, as opposed to somebody who is really primarily interested in service, which is why I think sometimes that it's better if a doctor works for a big organization and is putting in a certain amount of time and then gets paid for that time. And if they had more flexibility to spend their time the way they thought was really best for the patient, they would be back into the service mentality. But you have to keep in mind that the big organizations, they're not there for primarily service. They're there because it's a business. There's a return on investment. That's number one. Would they like to help people? Sure. Who wouldn't want to help people? But at the expense of your personal lack of, of providing? And most, most, of, and most of the time, they're pretty closed-minded about you know, complementary treatments. Oh, and, that too, but that's another the, topic. But some of the centers uh, try to seem like they do promote things like that, like they th- might throw in the word nutrition or, oh, you yeah. know. I, I think that most places advertise, which means they try to appeal to the public. I mean, look at Kaiser Hospital's Thrive Program. Doesn't it sound wonderful? We care about you. We listen and we care. John Muir Hospital does the same kind of a program themselves. And so do most of the, uh, I'm just talking about local hospitals in my area, in our area. And that's true because it's not like they don't want to help. They do. But the objective is not so much about that as it is the primary objective, which is the return on investment. So cost is always coming into play. Okay. So as a patient that's just been diagnosed with cancer, mm-hmm. What would they need to ask their doctor? What should they ask their doctor? Maybe people could go get a pencil and paper right now and write it down because I think it's really important to ask the right questions. Absolutely. The first one is, is is this treatment going to be have a different effect if I take it than if I do nothing? And with a lot of cancers, that's a reasonable question. And when you're looking at stage four cancers for solid tumors, the five-year survival rate with the best treatment we have in the world is between 2 and 3%. It's not much. And do some people do better than others? Yes, that's true. They do. And can you try a treatment to see if it works and you might have that 2 or 3%? Yeah, you might think about that. But is the doctor really disclosing all the negative things that go into that situation? I can tell you in general, they build up hope. And some of it's because they just want people to relax and to do what they think is the best for them. And it's not like they're trying to just make money off the deal. I don't think that at all. Well, and then the patient gets scared to do anything else. Well, when you're in shock. I mean, and they also feel like they need to do it right away. I mean, they're, yeah, they're so afraid. Well, you're in shock because yeah. you just found out you've got cancer. And then the doctor says, well, we can try some therapies and see how they work. Uh, you're not asking, well, what's my five-year survival rate with and without? And they may not be able to answer the question because one of the big missing issues uh, in oncology research is that we don't have any controls. You have one group that you treat and the other group that you don't? No, you don't. Because because they believe so much in the chemotherapy and the radiation and the surgery that they feel like it's risking the patient's life to, to have controls. That's what they say, and I think there's an element of truth to that. But is this good science? You know, we say in medicine that we, we're science-based, but we're not in this. This isn't science. This is the best we can do that's maybe got a little science in it, 
But it isn't the scientific method, certainly not. Well, and it's also making some assumptions. And over the years, we found out that certain assumptions that we used to make aren't accurate. Oh. Like, like we've talked about the Halstead mastectomy. You right, know? The and now mastectomy. We, so now they've come to doing, you know, lumpectomies. Well, that's what but, happens, see, when you don't do real clinical research. What should have been done 100 years ago by Sir William Halstead okay, is a controlled study where they did radical mastectomies on one group, and then the other, they did a lumpectomy, and another group, maybe they did nothing. Now you've got a scientific outcome study that you can follow over time to see what the difference is. But it took 75 years of mutilating women with this awful Halstead radical mastectomy procedure that turns out to be no better than a lumpectomy. Now the question is, is surgery always indicated for people who have cancer, even when it's localized? That Talk becomes a, a very interesting question because some people's cancer goes away. We think about 20% of cancers go away on their own. The problem is which ones? So do we have the research behind it? Do we have good scientific research to base our judgments on? We don't. So are there any other questions that you would ask if it were you? If you had cancer, what would you ask your doctor? Well, I want to know... What is this treatment going to do? How many side effects are they? And what are they likely to be? And I can tell you, I see patients with peripheral neuropathy in my office all the time because we have a way of, of treating these people using infrared light that I believe works. In fact, we're doing a, a clinical trial at the University of California in San Francisco now on uh, people who have chemotherapy-induced neuropathies because we need to do the science behind it to see if it works. So we've got one group we treat and another group that we don't. And we should have that answer from the study in a, in a year or two from now if everything works like we hope. So do the doctors actually tell you all these things? And my patients that I see that have neuropathy say, they never told me this. They might have mentioned the word neuropathy, but I wasn't even sure what it meant. Yeah. And so there's that. There's the nausea and vomiting. There are the blood problems that we get into. Uh, that uh, can lead to lots of trouble. And you see those talked about on TV too, but they also make that seem flowery. Well, yeah, like if these things happen, we'll deal with it. Well, yeah, you will deal with it, but how much are you going to suffer while you're doing it? And do we really want to do these treatments on people who have far advanced cancer? I have patients all the time coming to me with far advanced cancer, and the question is, is what's best for this person? And what's good for one is not good for another. And there are lots of ways to help people to have hope, or to find out what the illness means in the context of their whole life story and find out the lessons that are learned from it. And also keeping in mind that everybody's different and everybody's Absolutely. an individual. Right. And what one treatment might sound acceptable to somebody might not to somebody else. Right. And what's wrong with oncologists learning about some of the complementary other alternative oh, treatments? What's to wrong? Do some I herbs mean, what's things. wrong is that they don't do but it. But why don't they? They could add that to their pro to their suggions. Well, they could say you could do this, that, or you might want to try some artemisinin or well, a little methyl jasmine. There's some real some. good reasons why they do that. One is if they do, they're going to get looked upon by their peers. And by their medical boards, depending on what state they are practicing in, that could cause real trouble for them. The other, other why do we have a system like that? Well, who knows? I mean, is is this uh, something that Big Pharma did a bunch of years ago in California, which is where it's a felony? Okay, that's uh, fining, loss of license, and and possible imprisonment 
for doing anything except surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. But I thought it was okay now. Well, it may be okay. I mean, I'm involved in that process in Sacramento now where we're trying to pass some uh, uh, some legislation that will make it absolutely clear that the doctor can do anything that the doctor wants so long as they don't withhold the standard of care in the mainstream and they don't hurt you. Okay, but so what's wrong with saying this is what I, I would recommend. I'm mm-hmm. a conventional doctor. Yeah. I would recommend chemo, radiation, sure, or, or surgery. Whatever. Okay, so this is what I would recommend. Sure. There are also alternatives out there. Absolutely. If you're interested in, in learning more about them, you might want to Go on, go on the internet, or, or go well, see so and so, or recommend somebody they so-and-so. could go see. Yeah, you don't want to. And step. let the person make their own decision, and then if they decide that conventional sounds best to them, and the other okay. doctor thinks, well, you're at a point where maybe you should have that, then they can come back. Well, instead of trying to hang on to those patients to make money off of those patients. Well, I don't know if to that's do, the whole But thing, if you put the patient first, and they're the most important, you would be generous and open with your opinions about. You know, what telling them possible? what else is possible. Well, that's for sure. I think I think more harshly of that than you do. Or even I to say, I don't know that much about it, but I know that there are these other things out there. You might want to research them before we go ahead. Well, I wouldn't put it on the patient. I put it on the doctor. It's irresponsible and immoral for a doctor not to be familiar with what's possible in the treatment of cancer. And that includes what is in the mainstream, but it also includes what's in complementary and alternative medicine and what's on the horizon. That is a responsibility as a human being to another human being to make sure that they're getting the best that they can considering it all. Especially if it's their field. Well, it is their field, and that's why I'm saying that. So it's not like sending them to another doctor who's an expert in it. I mean, you can do that if you don't know, but I think it's not responsible. And I think it's not responsible on the part of the medical centers that teach this stuff either. They should be having courses that are inclusive, but they don't. And offering the the educational units for them. And they could be doing consultations about the patient with the other areas. Now, I have some ideas about why that doesn't happen. And it's because of the relationship of the pharmaceutical industry that has no interest in complementary and alternative therapies and the medical centers where the teaching occurs. There are big conflicts of interest there because a lot of money that comes into those centers comes from where? Big pharma. pharma. So you now have a conflict of interest that's huge. And you can't do necessarily the right thing or else you're biting the hand that feeds you. You cannot get in those. You can't get in those relationships. At the same time, the medical centers are between a rock and a hard place because finances are tightening up. And what we're seeing is medical centers coalescing because they can't make it on their own. And it's it's becoming a huge economic problem. I mean, you want to have a medical center that does the, everything that's possible, but you also want to be able to survive financially. Now, I think the principles are more important. Well, what if they had a protocol at these cancer centers where, like, when people go out of the country, for example, yeah. and they go to the Bahamas, exactly. or they go to the Gerson Clinic in Mexico, or well, I don't know, there's tons of them, there or they, they go to Germany, Germany or yeah. whatever. What about incorporating those kind of things well, of into a cancer center so a person would have all these choices? Of course. You could detox. You could, of course. There's all kinds of things you Most could do. Most doctors can't spell the word detox because they don't have any interest in it. They don't think about it. They don't realize that a lot of cancer is caused by what? Toxicity. So detoxification is a huge issue. How do you increase lymphatic drainage? How do you support liver function and kidney function to be able to 
get rid of these poisons that are affecting our genes in an epigenetic way so that cancer is the result. Who is the interest in that? Well, they maybe they just don't want to know. Well, they have been trained that way. They probably, if, if they feel like I did when I was in that situation 20 or 30 years ago, feel overwhelmed. Well, you know, so many times what happens, I think, people that are in alternative medicine are there because they've had their own personal experience. Oh, yeah. And that's why they've become that way. It's kind of like a person that quit smoking and they want everybody to yeah, quit. right, right. And so until these doctors have gone through it in their family and had a successful outcome with another method, they're yeah. going to keep doing what, they, what they're doing. Yeah. Well, once I saw a different way to practice that was more inclusive and I used my curiosity to research different kinds of approaches that were beyond what was taught to me in my medical training and what's used in the mainstream, a whole arena of new medicine opened up. And it's been so rewarding. It actually changed your who you are. Absolutely. It changed your personality. It changed totally. the way you practice, the way you do a lot of things. You become open-minded, and the curiosity is what's driving a lot of it, along with the intense determination to try and help people. And I just feel so bad for people who don't get what they can because the doctor just doesn't know. And a lot of the time when you've been in practice for a long time, a number of years, decades, you lose all that enthusiasm, and it becomes more of a job for some people. Others, they just get better as well, they get older. that's what happened to you. You got more intense about it. If I had more to practice, passionate, that's the word, more passionate about it. Well, that's it. for sure. If, but if I had to practice the way I was trained to practice, I'd find another career. Well, just like now I've learned so much about all this, too. If oh, I had I to go back and work in a hospital yeah. and give all these drugs, oh, my gosh, when our granddaughter was in the hospital. Oh, don't even go there. And I saw all the drugs and everything they were giving her. It's just like I couldn't hardly stand it. It's a pharmacy soup. There's so many. I mean, what we are trained to do in medical training is look at this drug, does that thing, and then rely on lots of powerful drugs. And then we do the same thing and that the oncologists do. And that's what your job do. is in a hospital. We don't talk about the side effects, the potential side effects, before we do it. And, of course, for people in the hospital, they're not in a position a lot of the time to make any kind of decision. Yeah, and that's their job is to give the medicines. And they don't yeah. understand why you don't want them. We, I took my son to the ER, and, and they wanted to give him a flu shot. Yeah, and it's right. like... Hello. Why don't you? I don't understand why you don't want it. Why wouldn't you want it? Yeah, well, you have to go through the whole drill of education there. And when you've got the whole medical industry in the mainstream saying flu shots are important, I mean, where do you go from that? And then they tried to talk him into getting a tetanus shot, and he he didn't even get an external cut. It was all inside. It was all inside. So there was no, yeah, but usually they stay from something rusty. Well, Well, that's maybe. (laughs) When's the last time you saw a case of tetanus or diphtheria? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and they'll say, well, of course it's because of the vaccines. Right. Yeah. Maybe so. Maybe not. Uh, But I will. Well, we can go on with that for a long time. Well, we'll be coming back after the break and we're going to be talking about cancer then. Exactly. So anyway, uh, it's time for your first 2020 tip, Vicki, and it's going to be insects and weeds be gone. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds like you're going to be using some pesticides here, but knowing you, I bet not. And when we come back, we're talking about does chemotherapy cause brain damage? Insect and weeds be gone. 
You know, I was reading online about a safe alternative to poisonous weed killers like Roundup, and I found one that talked about mixing vinegar and Epsom salt and Dawn dish soap and how it'll kill anything that you spray on it, and that you spray it on. And uh, all you do is just mix it and spray it in the morning, and then after the dew has evaporated, walk away, go back after dinner, and the weeds are all gone. Gee. And so I thought, well... There's got to be something in there that's bad. So I looked up Dawn dishwashing liquid because there's nothing I can't figure out about the vinegar or the salt. Well, the Dawn dishwashing liquid is so full of toxins. Mm -hmm. Go online and read what's in there, and I don't think you're going to want to use that to uh, wash your dishes (laughs) or to touch your hands. You don't want – maybe if you wore gloves and held your breath. So then I started wanting to research some more, and I went to this website that's O-A-E-C, water.org. So it's O-A-E-C, water.org. But basically, all the things that they're listing on there, all these natural insect repellents and weed killers and fungicides, there's several pages of them, and they're all safe products. And most of them include things like diatomaceous earth, wintergreen, clove, rosemary, lemon, garlic, soybean oil, neem oil, lecithin. Okay. Uh, py- I don't know how you pronounce it, pyrithum, which is a chrysanthemum powder. Uh-huh. I've used that on my horses before. Sesame oil, thyme. And then there are some things like sodium lauryl sulfate, oh, which yeah. is not a healthy thing. But I suppose if you spray it on your weeds, it's not <laughs> going to bother you. That's right. Or mineral oil. So um, I just want th- wanted to share that with everybody. So if you want to know the products that are already made up, you can go to that site. And, um, and you got it. There you go. Okay, yeah. thanks. That's good. But I just wanted people to know the ingredients that repel all those kind of things. You know, it's bad enough to get a cancer diagnosis like we were talking about before the break. And then to have your doctor recommend chemotherapy can be pretty scary. And we're all afraid of chemotherapy, mostly because we hear about the toxic side effects like hair loss and nausea and vomiting and peripheral neuropathies like you mentioned earlier and, and a decrease in immunity and, of course, fatigue. Mm, now a lot there of people are, have a lot of fatigue. And we know that there are other side effects, but now there's a new study confirming that chemo brain is caused from brain damage. So another reason to know what to ask your doctor before consenting to chemotherapy require, you know, regarding your quality of life and how much extra life it'll give you and if it can cure your cancer. Because we know now that it changes our brain. Well, it's poison. When Damages you're, it. When you're giving chemotherapy, you're giving something toxic that kills cells. Hopefully it kills more cells that are cancerous than the ones that are your normal cells. And that's the whole idea of a chemotherapy drug. But it's still toxic. Uh, all of them that I know of, uh, maybe a couple of exceptions here and there, are toxic to other cells too. And why wouldn't the brain be sensitive to toxins as well? It is. You know, previous associations show that, that uh, chemo brain can affect people's speech and their spatial orientation. Sometimes they get lost easily. But now in this new study, um, the maybe you'd like to talk about this MRI study and what it really showed. Well, yeah, they didn't really look at uh, all the things that can go wrong. They looked at some of them. And basically, this study that was uh, published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology uh, in May of 2014 was a report out of Belgium from the Catholic University of Leuven And what they did is they used functional MRIs. Now, these are MRIs that are different from the regular MRIs that we get because what they do is they inject something into the body 
where the brain t- tissue takes up this glucose that's tagged with some radioactive material. And you can see then what areas in the brain are lighting up and how much they're lighting up. And they found when they evaluated women who had breast cancer with chemo, with women who had breast cancer without chemo, with normal women who didn't have anything. And what they found is that every it was the women who had the chemotherapy only that had the changes in their brain that showed decreased activity, which is supposed to reflect some kind of defect in the tissue. And it would, when they were doing multitasking. Well, they couldn't multitask as well, but yeah. how sensitive do you think this test is? You wouldn't have a way of really knowing. Well, they said that the patients talked about how they had changes in their thinking and their memory, and they complained and called it brain fog. Well, yeah, I think that's right. That That's exactly right. And at the same time, the way these authors looked at the study, they said, yeah, there are some changes there. And, and while they are real and might be somewhat concerning, they're often not significant. It's sort of like, <laughs> not to hello? them. Yeah. <laughs> it mean, is to the patient. <laughs> just because we have a change on a, on a functional MRI uh, at a certain point of damage doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of other uh, abnormality that develops in function when these women are poisoned by chemotherapy that's not picked up by the functional MRI. So does everyone who has chemotherapy have an effect on the brain? I would say yes, and I wouldn't say just some. I'd say 100%. Wow. Okay? But that's my opinion based on simple logic, and what we're talking about here is why wouldn't it, when we know that it does do some changes that are real on the brain as well as other tissues, just because you don't have symptoms doesn't mean that you haven't lost brain tissue. We get back to this concept of what we're talking about with a wellness buffer again. Well, they also per- said, but they also, it's okay. <laughs> they also said, you can that, interrupt me. <laughs> they also said that 80% returned to normal after the chemo. Yeah, well, what's well what normal? happened? Yeah, but what happens to the other 20%? And then they said, well, but Vicki, it's the, worse than that. That the cognitive changes can, can last anywhere from one to 10 years. Those are the ones they can measure. But there's all this stuff they can't measure. When you go back to how much damage you have to do before you start to have symptoms, that's where the key is. So you may lose a lot of neural function, a lot of brain tissue, and still appear to be as functional as you were. But if you were able to measure in a very specific way and quantify that, which the functional MRI, we don't have proof that it does that, then what are we talking about? It could be something far more important. I wouldn't want to take chemotherapy in my brain unless I had made the decision that it was worth losing some of those cells to be able to live. Well, now at least we have a clear physiological change that's associated with these with those symptoms. Because okay. before, the, people were complaining of the symptoms, but they didn't really know what was going on. And now we know what's going on. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, so before that, what we're saying is, if we're oncologists, we're saying, well, we think you should take the treatment because if you don't take the treatment, we think you'll die and you'll probably live longer and you'll have better quality of life if you take the treatment. Well, now we find out that chemo brain is something that's a big deal in terms of what it's doing to your body. It's eating up your reserves and then a bit more because you're losing some function. That's sort of like a big deal. It's the same thing with fatigue. You know, about 30% of people have fatigue that really bothers them. What about the other 70%? Do they have some kind of fatigue? Have they lost some of their functional reserve? 
so that it uh, is something that uh, that is taking away from your ability to do things as far as attention is concerned and that it's not really measurable. So if you can't measure it, it doesn't count. I mean, that's the sort of thing that's happening here. I, I think it's very cavalier to do things to people without disclosing like we did. You know, we talked about for the first 20 minutes of the show. We shouldn't be so definite about the values of chemotherapy and radiation and surgery and, and drugs well, we and all the to, other things we do in medicine unless we know the facts, and we usually don't. We need to be fair about it. We can't. We need to yeah. give them the, the benefits and the risks, give them an outline and right. say this is what could be good and this well, is what couldn't be good. You well, might want to consider alternatives before you do the chemotherapy, you know, and have an open mind about well, that. This is what happens, Vicki. You go to the oncologist they tell you about all the things. You sign something that says you've read it. You don't know what the hell you've read. It's sort of like when you go to the hospital. They say, here, well, fill out these forms. Well, you've got brain fog because you're upset. Yeah. Or <laughs> when you're buying a house and they say, here, sign these 50 pages of documents. They're just standard. Don't worry about it. You think you know what's in that document? And it's the same sort of thing here. Do you really think? Yeah. you really think? I mean, and, and the doctors are really keen to start doing something. It's sort of like that's where you go to the doctors. You can do something to change the course of what illness there is there. Well, there are times that it's advocated, you know, that it's a good idea. There are certain times that it is. But I think it's just that's true. it's good to look at both sides. So, how do we get real honesty in this? It's not so easy. Well, is it time for a station break? <laughs> Looks that way. All right. You listen to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki. And we'll be right back uh, with more Prescriptions for Health Radio. We'll be talking about another good reason to drink red wine, but not too much. fun to learn how things that taste good can be good for us? Absolutely. You know, recently we reported on how peaches can kill cancer cells and how dark chocolate decreases our risk for heart attacks and strokes. Mm-hmm. Now we have a study on more benefits from drinking red wine. Ah, now we got a combination of things we can have yeah. that are really fun. Okay. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. So it's not just good for our hearts, but it's also good for our dental health. So... How does this work? I mean, I would think that red wine would have sugar and it would stain your teeth and it would cause cavities because of the sugar in it. Well, it turns out it doesn't. You know, the whole idea of ecosystems, microbial, microbe ecosystems in the body, is becoming very popular in medical research and it's starting to leak into the mainstream of medicine. And even our gastroenterologists are starting to talk about probiotics and prebiotics and and, and what the microbiome, which is all those different kinds of microbes that live in us in different places, is all about. Well, when you think about it, our mouth is part of our GI tract. Absolutely. <laughs> That's where it goes, right on down. Well, every section of our body has a different uh, population of microbes. There are different kinds of microbes. What lives in our gut isn't the same thing that lives in our mouth or lives in our eye or lives in our skin. Uh, so it, it we depends on where We have good ones and we have bad ones. 
Well, we live in a, in a relationship. It's really a symbiotic relationship. It's like a parasitic relationship. So the microbes live off of what we have in terms of secretions and tissues and different kinds of compounds that are present in our body that are nutrients. And we like what they do for us. And there's a balance there that keeps us in a healthy state. And when that gets messed up, we get lots of problems, particularly yeah, like in the intestinal we get the, tract. And then if we get the bad ones causing a biofilm on our teeth... Well, then we get dental plaque and cavities, and it can lead to periodontal disease. Well, that's right, and actually loss of teeth as well. So this, there was an article published in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry in May okay, of 2014 that looked at these, this system, and, the, and it basically said what you said, that if you have a disordered system, so if the wrong microbes live there, they're going to cause problems with periodontal problems, with tooth decay, and with tooth loss. And what's interesting, too, is that a lot of these bacteria, the, the wrong ones mm-hmm. that form on the plaque, get underneath your gums. So, so they go way down in your teeth underneath your gums where it's really hard for, for us to clean ourselves. That's when pe- people end up going to the periodontist. But one thing that can be really helpful is to use dental floss. And when you do, you have to know the right way to use it so that you can totally get around each tooth mm-hmm. so that it goes down underneath the gum. But I'm wondering where the red wine fits in here. Well, that's what these uh, people uh, who did this study were actually uh, talking about. And what they pointed out is that there are polyphenols from tea and cranberries and from wine and grapes that have been implicated in fighting certain strains of streptococcus, which, when they're present in the mouth, can cause dental caries. Hey, that's cool. Somebody has strep throat, they can gargle with some red wine. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't know if it's the same strep. And they could anyway, and it might have some antimicrobial effect. Uh, I suppose, if it was, especially if it was warm. Uh, but, but, yeah, that's something to think well, about. Well, because some of the antimicrobials that, that you use can have side effects. You know, it, c- it can reduce your taste buds so you don't taste things as well. It can even make your gums be discolored. And also you can develop bacterial resistance. And so you wouldn't have this happen if it was from red wine. Well, what you have is something that's natural that we've been doing for thousands of years that our body's adapted to. And, but when you talk about using an antibiotic that's like a penicillin or something like that, it goes in there and kills all kinds of bugs, not just the ones that may cause uh, cavities to occur or periodontal disease to occur. And so you wind up having what? What remains are those microbes that are resistant to the antibiotic. Now you've got a new problem. You've got a whole population of bugs that are going to overgrow in an area where there's open turf, there's like a tissue culture there with nothing on it, allowing the bad bugs to start growing. And that's what the problem with antibiotics in general is and why we get into so much trouble in the gut when we take antibiotics in terms of diarrhea and this pseudomembranous colitis that we talk about when people have a, a, a big problem in the hospital. They or, also, or even out of the hospital now with C. diff. They also made it clear in this article that it was not due to the resveratrol in the red wine because, you know, there have been a, there's been a lot of talk about the benefits of resveratrol and mm-hmm. there are studies that go both ways. Some of them say that... Well, it, this is just one more study, okay, yeah. and it, it's not positive. But let's look at what these scientists did, okay? They used a biofilm model of dental plaque that really put in five different species of microbes uh, that are commonly associated with oral disease. And then they 
looked at the effect of red wine uh, on the on its ability to inhibit the biofilm, which is something that's secreted by the microbes that uh, has activity that might be negative, in fact, is negative. And so what they did is they they had biofilm cultures that were placed in different things. They were put some in red wine uh, uh, with alcohol, some in alcohol-free red wine, and then they put some with red wine and grapeseed extract, some with just water, and some with just ethanol, or just you know, alcohol. And they did that just for a couple of minutes. And what they found was is that the red wine, with or without alcohol and the wine that was combined with grapeseed extract was the best, okay, in a test tube experiment to combat the bacteria. So what they concluded was is that red wine at a certain concentration inhibits the growth of certain of these bacteria that cause dental problems, including the periodontal disease, cavities, and eventually tooth loss. So that's an interesting study that they did that that tells us what? It tells us that natural things... You know, foods. Not long ago, I was reading. Are good for us. I was reading an article that said that uh, curcumin was anti-inflammatory in your mouth, and that it's also that was antimicrobial too. Yeah. Well, that's one way of fighting some of the periodontal problems that exist. The problem with curcumin is it might stain your teeth if you left it in there too long. Well, I would think red wine could stain your teeth too. You know, yeah, but it doesn't so much. I mean, if you, I suppose, if you soaked your dentures in it, that might be a denture. Or if you were a wine, or if you were a wino. Well, if you had wine in your mouth all the time, but I think it it clears every time. Well, you... the thing about the curcumin, when I was reading about that, it didn't tell you the concentration, and well, I thought was I was kind of itself. afraid to do it because that's how I dye Easter eggs. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I can make some pretty bright yellow Easter eggs, and I I don't want my teeth to be a bright yellow. <laughs> well, that's one of the best kept secrets around is what you can do in a safe, non-toxic way for Easter with your kids. What do you do for your Easter eggs? Well, that's what I was just saying. That's, with these ice that, well, that's my favorite. Well, that's my favorite one. Well, that's my favorite color. Well, I've tried other things, and they're not really too effective. How about the beet juice one that you use? Yeah, but it kind of wasn't that great. They're all pastels. Yeah, they, it, it kind of looked brown, and it was like, well, I can get a brown egg, you know. <laughs> My favorite one is the curcumin one. All right, so we get, so it's really... Sp- I tried cabbage, red cabbage. I tried, uh-huh. I don't know, carrots. I tried that. I tried a lot of things. But anyway, we don't need to get off the topic. Well, that was just kind of a fun little aside <laughs> for you. But I think red ch- wine also sounds like, you know, a better choice than, than antibiotics. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, what what wine does to us in terms of uh, killing things is a very select spectrum. And you're not killing just, just the bacteria that are the bad ones. You're, I mean, you're killing a few of the others. But antibiotics, they go in there and kill so many things. And then it leaves this open space for the wrong bacteria to overgrow. And that's when you wind up with yeast infections, C. diff infections, right, yeah. and, and others that are actually given an opportunity to take over. So that might be another good reason to when you eat to eat yogurt because you're really getting all those probiotics in your mouth rather than taking it in a pill. Yeah, well, that's true too. All right, that's all good stuff. So I want to go. Oh, yeah? It didn't clink very well, though. <laughs> Cheers. You're, you're two-fisted there. You're going to give me a little wine, Cheers too? to our gum, <laughs> to our gums <laughs> and our teeth. <laughs> All right. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Sabuta here with Nurse Vicki. It's time for Vicki's final 2020 tip on lessons life taught a 90-year-old. Wow. There's got to be some impact in that one. 
And when we come back, we'll be talking about is your sleep rhythm, if your sleep rhythm is disturbed, your health may be in danger if you eat certain foods. That pretty surprised me. And lastly, can your blood pressure medication make you go blind? Wow. I have some life lessons that were taught by 90-year-old Regina Brett. There ought to be some wisdom in that. She's been around long enough. <laughs> yep, and she said it's something we should all read once a week. So I thought, well, if you've heard them before, it's okay. All right. Well, you we can should... hear it one time at least today. Yeah. Right. So she says, life isn't fair, but it's still good. All right. When in doubt, just take the next small step. That gives you a little courage, huh? Life is too short. Enjoy it. Your job won't take care of you when you're sick, but your friends and family will. There you go. Pay off your credit cards every month. <laughs> that would be very smart. You don't have to win every argument, but stay true to yourself. Here's a good one. Cry with someone. It's more healing than crying alone. Indeed. That's interesting. That's a good one. It's okay to get angry with God. He can take it. <laughs> right. Save for retirement, starting with your first paycheck. Make peace with your past so it won't screw up the present. Boy, that's a mouthful. Isn't a lot of it? people with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, that are living with all those buttons from the past. Yeah. It's okay to let your children see you cry. It really is. The first time my son saw me cry was the first time he told me he loved me. Oh, wow. Good yeah. for both of you. Yeah, and he's been doing it ever since. <laughs> That's great. Crying or telling telling you? No, telling me. <laughs> no, I was crying. Oh, he you wasn't were crying. crying. Okay, good. Don't compare your life to others. You have no idea what their journey's all about. For sure. Till if, you walk their journey, you ought to keep your mouth shut, not judge a, them. There's another good one. If a relationship has to be a secret, you shouldn't be in it. That's right. Everything can change in the blink of an eye, but don't worry. God never blinks. Hmm. Take a deep breath. Right. <sighs> it calms the mind. Get rid of anything that isn't useful. Clutter weighs you down in many ways. Whatever doesn't kill you really does make you stronger. And it's never too late to be happy, but it's all up to you and no one else. And I really like this one. Overprepare. Hmm. Then go with the flow. Yeah, you got to trust yourself. That's the big That was a huge lesson for me. Learning how to trust myself rather than wondering about what other people would think about who I am and what I do. I've figured something out about that that's really kind of interesting. If somebody somebody's opinion who is a fool about me is something that is being spoken at the moment, I become the fool if I let it influence how I feel. That's a good one. Well, well, I have. 90, I have. A, I'll have some others. <laughs> well, yeah, I I have several more, and I'm going to do those our next radio show. Okay, sounds good. You know, our bodies are really complicated, and yet so connected. I mean, who would guess that when we go to sleep, we would affect the microbes in our GI tract? <laughs> right. Who would even think of studying it? It's pretty good. You know, fiber and chocolate and antibiotics and birth control sure. pills and NSAIDs, many other medicines and certain vitamins can all affect our GI tract and our immunity. Right. Then if we eat too much sugar with unhealthy fats, when our circadian rhythm is off, affecting our melatonin, mm -hmm. it can alter our intestinal microbiota, contributing 
to inflammation, and inflammation leads to diseases like cancer and irritable bowel disease and chronic fatigue syndrome and heart attacks and strokes and so much more. So how does this work? Well, it's not as complicated as, as a lot of people think, but it's something that's really important because think about it this way. What you put into your gut, the food that you eat, is going to appeal to some microbes and not to others. Some, some of the microbes will be able to use what you eat. Others will not, depending on what you eat. So what you eat dictates what a lot of the microbes in the, in the intestinal tract are going to be and in how large a quantity. So that's what they're really talking about here. But what so- you feed makes a big difference. It's like people, let's look at people who have lactose intolerance, okay? They have this so-called milk uh, insensitivity. You don't have the enzyme in that setting to be able to process the lactose. You can't digest it. So when it gets down into the lower part of the intestinal tract in the colon, what happens is those microbes that love lactose are now getting lactose. And they're going to be preferentially fed so that they can grow and reproduce more so than they could before. So they're going to displace some of the other bacteria, other microbes that are down there. And that will get rid of some of the friendly bacteria that we need that help us. So when these microbes overgrow, they cause the bloating, the distension, the gas, the cramps, and other symptoms that go along with lactose intolerance. So we've been talking a lot about probiotics and how important they are. For years. So let's talk about how it's connected to our sleep patterns, Yeah, at that, our circadian rhythms. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a surprise that the, way, the amount that we sleep or when we sleep makes such a big difference. But if the biochemistry of our body is changed depending on the state that we're in, say there's inflammation or there isn't, or, or there's some other process going on uh, that makes certain nutrients more available when you sleep as opposed to when you're exercising because there are different nutrients that are being used to burn to make energy. That does make a difference on which bacteria are going to grow uh, down in the gut. So it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that when you see a disruption in uh, the sleeping patterns that we have, that you see a change in the microflora as well. Well, you know, I've noticed if, if I haven't had had enough sleep, for example, or you are on jet lag or you're traveling or whatever, Mm -hmm. and you go to an airport or what have you, and and there's all this junk food to, you know, and many times I think when people are really tired, they turn to junk food, kind of like a comfort sort of thing. Yeah, we did a study on that. We we reported on a study. And eating, you know, lots of sugar with with the wrong fats and all that (laughs) kind of thing. So (laughs) this is where the problem is that they found in this study is that if you eat these foods that are high in sugar and high in the wrong fats when you're on jet lag or if you do shift work because mm-hmm. it's influenced by the melatonin in some way that and probably other factors as well so when you so are in other words your- when you're sleeping in the daytime and you're awake at night mm-hmm. like we are right now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like we do so often is what I really meant. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, when that happens, then there are changes. And so it's, it's not a big surprise. And what these researchers did is they studied that. And what they found is that when there were chronic circadian rhythm disturbances, okay, so changes in the way we sleep, and we had a diet that was full of junk food, and these studies were done on mice, which is very similar to what happens in people, 
that there was a lot of inflammation that would follow if they had the junk food, but not so much if they didn't. Although there would be some kind of change in the microflora, but it wouldn't be that big of a deal. So when that happens, when the rhythms are disturbed and it's combined with a high-fat, high-sugar diet, it contributes to inflammation in the body, and you can see the inflammatory markers go up, and we've reported on those studies before. And in this particular study, which came out of Rush University Medical Center and published in the Public Library of Science, it showed that inflammatory bowel disease was in a far higher uh, incidence. So that's what they were talking about. Well, the other thing is, if you have these risk factors, is it a smart idea to add probiotics to your diet? Well, I think probiotics in general... If you're suffering from jet lag or you do um, shift work? In general, with the things that we're exposed to in our life, there's so many toxicities and challenges that we face that change the microflora that we ought to be using probiotics at least once or twice a week to try and at least put in those friendly microbes in amounts that are a little bit higher. So, have you noticed how much more we hear about macular degeneration as the leading cause of blindness over age 65? You know, it used to be glaucoma. So, could it be because of the more common use of blood pressure pills? They revealed this in a recent study that was published in the Journal of the American Academy of Ophthalmology. So, what is macular degeneration. Let's talk about some of the symptoms. Okay, well, there are a couple of kinds. First, there's dry and wet, and dry is is a much more, uh, a much less serious illness than the wet form. And what happens is in the central part of the field of vision, on the retina, are changes that interfere with vision in macular degeneration. In the dry form, uh, you don't distort the surface so, of the retina so much, And that's why uh, it it doesn't cause that much change in your vision, particularly in the early phases of it. But in wet macular degeneration, there's a lot of blood vessel growth that disturbs the surface pattern of the retina, and that distorts your vision because it should be smooth. So if it's not, it's like you're looking through some kind of prism. Anything on the the retina is really serious. Well, it's not a good idea. That's right. Well, what happens, too, is that... I think the way that it manifests itself is you see like it starts out, you see a dark dark spot in your central vision and then it continues to get larger. So like, for example, if I'm looking at your face, yeah, you your mo- your, I might not see your nose because it's going to be and around. as it gets bigger, you might not see a lot of my head. That's, and it's very hard to read. So it's a big, it's a dangerous illness that you don't want. drive people nuts. All right. Now, what the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine researchers did and published in the journal Ophthalmology in May of this year, 2014, is they they did a study on 5,000 people aged 43 to 86 over 25 years from 1988 to 2013. And what they found is in those people who are taking antihypertensive drugs, okay, drugs to lower your blood pressure, those that were using drugs that would dilate up blood vessels, things like hydralazine or apresoline and minipress, that there was a 72% increased risk for early stage Uh, macular degeneration. There was about an 8% of the population, uh, they they found out, that would develop uh, this age-related macular degeneration anyway, but in those that were taking vasodilators, these drugs we just mentioned, 19% did. So we're looking at a fifth of the population. This is not some small thing. They also found that patients that were on beta blockers, the drugs like uh, Indoral and Tenormin, uh, 
have about a 71% increase in the formation of wet macular degeneration, which is the worst kind. But you've got to be careful with some of these statistics. And so I want to point out that the first statistics of a increase from 8 to 19% in 5,000 people, that's pretty substantial. But when you're looking at, at the wet macular degeneration in people with beta, who are taking beta blockers, and there's a 71% increase in, in, the, in the development of that disease, that number only went from one-half of 1% to 1.2%. Now, that's a lot less impressive than saying it's a 71% increase in the risk of, of the disease. Well, still pretty, pretty scary whatever way to take any chance to becoming blind. So what would be well, some, right. some natural ways to reduce your blood pressure without having to take these, these drugs that could make you blind? See, now you're hitting the nail on the head. What we think of reflexively is how do we stop the result, the, the end stage of hypertension, which is kidney failure, heart attacks, strokes, and, and some other problems with vascular insufficiency. How do we do that? Well, in medicine, in the practice of medicine, we use drugs. And that's really the first thing we do, even though everybody knows, doctors know, drug manufacturers know, even the people who have hypertension know that it's a lifestyle-oriented dis- or caused disease most of the time. So what we should be looking for is ways to attack where the problem is rather than just treating the end result. Because every time we use a drug, how many side effects there are, it's unbelievable. Yeah, there's more side effects than the blindness too. Well, yeah, and who discloses those? What doctor discloses all the side effects that you can see, for example, from taking a drug like hydralazine? I mean, or Minipress. I mean, look well, at the drug Minipress. Minipress is Rogaine. That's Rogaine. It's, it is a drug that is used to grow hair and also a drug that's and, used to lower your blood pressure. And if you're putting it on your head, it could be absorbed through your skin, couldn't it? it probably so, sure. I would expect it would be. Wow. But that just is an example that shows you, do we really have a handle on the side effects that we see with most of the drugs? Well, tenormin is also no. referred to as a tenolol. So well, that's somebody, just another name for it. I know, yeah. but people should know, and if they're on it, they need to be aware. That's yeah, all. well, and, and then, of course, talk to your doctor about it, who probably hasn't read this because it just came out. And, you know, you can go back to our site. All the references are there uh, at drsaputo.com. And, uh, so and get, enough, so get, enough, get enough exercise. You, you might want to cut back on the sodium in your diet, reduce okay. the stress levels in your life, and get enough sleep. All right. want to remind you, because we're at the end of the show, that we'll be back to talk about what's new in the news and health the first and third Mondays of every month on prn.fm. And drsaputo.com from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Prescriptions for Health will also be available 24-7 on prn.fm. And if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the drsaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. See you next time.